Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. two-fisted drinker. <laughs> I'll be running. My name's Susie J, and I'm an alcoholic, and um, it's just wonderful to be here with you this morning. My sponsor's sitting right down here with her husband, and um, they drove up from Morro Bay, and I think I've cried through the whole weekend because where you thought are perhaps, I thought in my alcoholic brain that the synapses all go off at once a time, so if you feel like you're on an acid trip, it's okay. It'll all come back. It's a free trip. But um, I was coming here in service to you, and you've done nothing but be in service to me. It's been a difficult year, and I'm so honored and grateful to stand here before you and to be looking at my sponsor and her husband, to my dear sister here, to my it's like, Carlos, what are you supposed to do? And where's Tito? Stand up. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to, you know, you yo, 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 yay. We're supposed to be happy, joyous, and free, and a little bit nuts. And so um, it's very good to be here this morning in front of all of you. And um, the conference committee, I want to thank you with all of my heart. I walked into this as I have several times before, this hotel, and with my daughter and one of my sons. And we always go in groups because we're accountable to each other. And I love being with my children. So from living on the streets, from being in an, banging, <laughs> see, there's a proof, from being an ex-gang member, to staying in hotels that I didn't necessarily need to stay in, but did, I honor you and thank you for inviting me here to share my experience, strength, and hope. And I immediately, um, boy, we walked in the lobby and um, <clears throat> our jaws dropped, you know, and we didn't want to look like churros, but, you know, <laughs> and I'm holding my bottle like this, so I thought I fit in. It was apple juice. <laughs> and... Um, but we just went, and, you know, of course, my children are here, and I've said this to them before. I said, um, you know, go and have fun and, and be free because I died to get here. So, you know, just <laughs> have a good time, and we certainly have. We went to the aquarium yesterday, and um, so anyway, on behalf of the – I'll go back to that. Here we go with the acid back and forth thing. But on behalf of the committee and the love and the graciousness that you've showed us in our family and coming to your area to speak in the language of the heart, which is I'm standing here before you sober today, and I haven't shot anybody in 18 years. I ran anyone over. I've gone to jail. I've written a bad check. <laughs> okay. Come close. <laughs> and it wasn't with the check. Um, <laughs> um it's good to be in the midst of my brothers and sisters and to my friend Susie who drove all the way from Vallejo, California. I think it was four weeks ago I went back to my 27th reunion that I didn't graduate from, but because I was still alive, it was kind of a token honorary thing. <laughs> and we're driving in a Jaguar and, and boy, you know, um, I don't know if I can say this right, but you can take the gang out of the gangster, but you can't. Always take the gangster out of the gangster. <laughs> anyway, you'll figure that out later. But um, we were driving in Vallejo, and uh, we, hey, Carlos, and we got a phone call, and 
part of the story that's ahead of the story that I had to tell my sponsor about was on the streets. I lived with many different diverse cultures of people, many different gangs. And I always say this, that I used to talk so freely about the gangs that I, I was in. And uh, I would prefer not to do that now because some of them may still be looking for me. And, and some of them I've made amends to and some of them I've reunited with. And so we were in... Uh, this will go over real well, but we were in the Hells Angels Clubhouse. The president called and said, you know, come on down, and the water's on us, Susie. And so, <laughs> and you know, how much water can you drink? And so I stayed about, you know, half an hour and said thank you and paid my respects and was sober and walked out because they were some of the people that I, that helped me during this time. And I know that sounds odd because the movies, um, but it wasn't at all. To have my daughter here with me today... Knowing that she's never seen me take a drink, and she goes everywhere with me. She knows my story, and she'll carry the message when I'm gone, because the message is bigger than anything that we came in imagining it to be. For me as a mother and a woman who lived on the streets, um, the things that you've taught me will be passed on to my children, and I keep... We keep trying, huh, sis? We're doing pretty good. So thank you for being here, Miwa. My daughter's name is Miwa. She's Miwa Chichansi and Paiute Indian and Jewish. And <laughs> woo! <laughs> so we're getting her into the meetings early. <laughs> and um, my sobriety date <laughs> is August 12th of 1989. So... One day at a time, 24 hours, and in the last year, I think I've done one minute at a time at moments. So we're just so honored to be here. Thank you for the basket. You know, the first basket I ever got at the conference, I think everybody talked about it. I walked in, and there was a bar downstairs, and I went, don't drink, get to the conference sober. And then there was a big basket in the room, and it was full of these goodies, and I told everybody, stay away from the basket, because I thought it was, you know, you take it out and you pay for it. And anyway, <laughs> I just, just don't touch anything. And, <laughs> and then I saw attached to it were the promises. And so I, I, it had a card. So I, you know, and went and opened the card and it said, welcome. Two things came to me this weekend. I was reading, um, this is my, my new book. Um, that's the old book, but <laughs> now I just can't quite go forward or backward, but. In it, the words salvation means in the Hebrew language, welcome home. And my sponsor and her husband came here from Akron, Ohio. They went to Dr. Bob's house where it all started and brought me this bracelet. And on it, it says, welcome home. So that's what I want to say to every person in the room this morning, that this is our home and our heart and our peace of mind. And to be standing here and not slobbering down my shoulder or your shoulder, be wrecking cars, to have car insurance, to have, to have a car, <laughs> to have teeth. Hey, let's go way back. Um, <laughs> there's no secrets because they'll pull them out. <clears throat> um, the miracles keep going and coming and, and just it's just so, such an honor. So I don't need to be convinced and there's no great illusion. Thank you so much for everything. I want to uh, thank the speakers that spoke before me. When Bo was talking about um, his chair and how he could take his chair out with the chickens. And I think my chair has been amongst the chickens before and the roosters. <clears throat> and, um, and if he just sat there in that chair and did no other thing but sit there in the chair that we wouldn't receive the message, I thought that that was so powerful. And so, you know, we came, I came in here, you know, oh my gosh. Well, well, I'll get to that part, but I just, this really cockiness about that chair. And if I sit on the floor today, I'm perfectly happy because I don't own that chair. That chair was given to me by the grace of God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I sit in the chair, it's almost like, um, it's like a princess throne. You know, I feel like, hmm, this is, this is how it feels to be in the glory and the kingdom of God. So I came in through the gates of insanity and death, and now I hold the king keys to the kingdom. 
and they're sitting right in front of me, and that's all of you. I want to thank Giuseppe, my friend, who he makes us laugh so hard. He, I just I think he's a nut, and I just love him with all my heart. And um, and his story on Dorothy, do, do you do you love that? I mean, that's precious. And can't we all relate? I mean, we all have some um, enigma or analogy that relates us to ourselves. And um, when I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was six months pregnant. I had had three children. And um, I felt so much shame. And the big book said to me that no human power could have relieved me from my alcoholism. Not pregnancy, not my children, not you. That I can be in this program and showing up at meetings and sitting in that chair and not doing what I'm supposed to do. And what will happen is I will be at the standing point. And we talked about the boundary, the line. My dad used to say it was invisible. And we can step over it. And um, so we either set it or we move it. And I've decided to set mine. And that's what happened when I came into the program. So going way back, I was born in 1960 in Richmond, California, 23rd Street, gang territory. It was just a wonderful place to be. My father was a Miwok Indian man. He was a holy man in our nationality. I speak my language. I'm a traditional dancer. I go back to dancing um, in our family, oh gosh, 120 years as far as I know. And we sing our songs. Um, and my mother's Jewish. <laughs> so I, I always think, let's drink, you know, <laughs> because, geez, what a combination. I went back. I go to the reservation once a month to be with my cousins and to share the message of uh, the experience, strength, and hope that's been brought to me. And um, I remember coming into these meetings and thinking how different that I was and the clarity that came when I found out that I was one among many. So everything that you say, there's nothing special about being a speaker. If you think that we stand up here well, oh, my gosh, I'm a fruitcake. You know, when Giuseppe talks about um, Dorothy, well, I relate to Dory in Finding Nemo. <laughs> so I went to the aquarium yesterday, and I'm like, there you are, sis, you know. And she's like, who are you? And I'm like, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> and, you know, my children said, you know, we, we've got to move on now, Mom. <laughs> And I felt just perfectly safe and at home with Dory. So cheers to Dory. Um, prior to coming in here, I was raised by my mother as a child. And I think that there's some real good clarity. Some people drink, we drink, and then it just becomes who we are and the fear leaves. And I, I respect so much Giuseppe's story on his battles in sobriety because that's honesty in the room that's the real deal that's not a fairy tale that's who I am right now at this very moment with you and um coming in oh gosh that's right I have a you've probably seen this before but I have a before picture so um this is before I think it's so perfect, you know. <laughs> and it's uh, one of many uh, facilities that I I uh, was able to, you know, be one among many. <laughs> but um, I think this is the Vallejo Detention Center. So I think it's appropriate to be on screen and very humble. I don't know how I look at that number now, but... and. Um, to move on and to know that that's a way of the past, and I constantly fight that battle. I have one free get-out-of-jail ticket, and that's only because the sheriffs like me so much in Mariposa, because I've been sober, and they haven't had to deal with me in 16 years. So I came in here, and I was, um, so excuse me, let me go back. I was raised by my mother, who was an intravenous drug user, and she's been off of the needle for 30, 40 years. And in growing up, the house was dark, and if you made any noise, there was consequences to that noise. And I had no, um, I had no sense of being and no social life. 
I had no sense of what Berber carpet was or how to brush my teeth or how to comb my hair. And my grandmother and father were separated from me at this time. And I would go to school and I remember watching all the little girls. You know, we always watch each other to see how we act and what we do and how to learn. And so whether it's in here or out there, I have at any given moment the ability to not fit in if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I, um, I cry a lot, and it's out of gratitude. And from coming from the streets and putting a gun to the side of your head and being the original carjackers, um, because we would terrorize people. If I cry today and anybody calls me a sissy, I just dare them to meet me outside, and then my sponsor will take care of them after that. Because so. <laughs> it feels good to let, you know, it's, it's that gratitude. But to make a long story short, because a drunk log shouldn't go on forever, I lived in a very, very dark place where there was no communication and there was severe abuse. The first woman that I ever related to was Sybil. And that is not an understatement by any means. That's how severe the abuse was. How can you find yourself when you're continually living in this darkness? And there's nothing that's filling your heart and you don't know as a child. These are things my children will not know. Meanwhile, we'll never know this, I hope, and pray by the grace of God. I think I was, you know, and I always get confused and that's the way the story goes. But I think I was about 12 years old and I had received a phone call. And in the meantime, I'm picking my mom up off of the floor, training myself for a future profession. Um, taking tourniquets off of her arm, pulling the needles out of her arm, getting beat sometimes when the when the veins would collapse and there was no place left to put the needle in. And so it would go into the neck. And I remember watching and getting up in the middle of the night and <clears throat> going into the kitchen and seeing a spoon over the stove and trying to peek around the corner to see what the heck that they were doing with that spoon when they were cooking. And if I got caught, you know, there are consequences for that. I remember at six years old, one of these people who so gracefully wanted to come in and and come into the shooting gallery decided to, you know, beat me pretty severely and lock me up in a closet and left me there. And so this was my standard for what I was to become. And I don't blame any of that. I think that that's a heroic story. I think it's Prince's story. Because to stand here in front of you, having lived through some of the darkest memories that I'll never be able to share, I came to claim my keys to the kingdom. And I don't think there's anybody to drag me out of that. And I'm very grateful. I think 12 or 13 years old, I received a phone call stating... I heard my stepfather say, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I thought, oh, gosh, she fell down again. The needle's in her arm. Here we go. You know, I'm a little girl trying to make it through school, trying to act normal, wishing that, you know, breakfast was on the table. And, um, again, separated from my grandmother and father, who were very traditional Miwok people and lived a very simple, humble life. And I, I, he didn't say anything to me from the road to Napa Valley down to Vallejo, and we walked into the hospital and the nurses came running up, and they said, your mother's been shot with a thirty-eight, with a hollow-point bullet close range. Her intestines had been perforated 17 times, no filling in her left leg. She was in a coma. And they told me that my mother was going to die. I remember being able to walk in and look at her and know that they also told me that because she was so malnutritioned from shooting drugs, that she would either die from malnutrition or she would die from the gunshot wound. I'm a little girl, and I'm processing all this in my head, and I'm thinking, you know, which way do I go and where do I run? And I know at that moment, as Giuseppe said, that I lost myself, and the insanity began without the drink. 
And when I found the drink, the drink became my friend. You know, the when Chexy talks about the hole in your stomach that the wind blows through, well, I had a hurricane. And there was no one. They actually dropped me off at the house by myself, and I walked in. And I walked in, and the house was dark, and I knew that the paramedics had been there, and I knew everything that was going on, and there was blood all over the floor. And I remember walking towards her bed and slipping through the blood on my back, getting up, and I remember trying to pick the bullet out of the wall because for some reason there was something associated with getting that bullet out of the wall and perhaps things would change and my life would become what it should be, whatever that was as a child. To go on, um, I took care of her for about three or four months and then I hit the streets. And um, I could fit in anywhere. What do they call those? Camomiles? Camellias? How do you say that? Well, something that turned into anything, you know. (laughs) There comes Linda Blair. So anyway, (laughs) from Sybil to Linda Blair, I'm moving up in the world. And um, so I I just hit the streets, and I stayed on the streets for quite a while, and when I was... 16. I was pregnant with my first son. His name is Damien, and he is Filipino and Hawaiian, Miwok Indian, Jewish from my side. And um, wow, what a combination. And um, I had him on my 17th birthday at 8.30 in the morning, and I was born at 8.32, and I thought that this was a holy child and for sure that things would get much better. And within just a matter of time, I did what what we always do. I dropped my child off and went running, hooked up with someone else. I think he was Portuguese. Don't want to have to talk about him because then I'll be making amends promptly. And um, I had a son by him at 23 years of age, and at this time I had no high school diploma, no schooling, and went to work in a pharmacy. Um, it was wonderful. And um, they picked the right person. <laughs> and um, everything was kind of free pickings. You know, you could just shop. And they had liquid cocaine. It was blue. And, of course, I thought, you know, it's it's in a clean vat, and you should drink this. It's just sitting there, for God's sakes. And so <laughs> I was their best worker. They didn't want to fire me. And I, and I was union. And I, I managed to hold on to that job for a few years. By this time, I become pregnant with my second child, who is here with me today somewhere. Um, It's kind of painful for him to hear these things, but he's 23, and he's Portuguese, (laughs) Um, Miwok, Jewish, and um, that was a, I gave him up when he was three years old. And at this time right now, the reason why he's not in this room is because hes it's painful for him to hear some of these things. And he knows that um, he's coming to terms with a lot of the wreckage of the past that I left. And the best amends that I can make is I can tell you something right now. And I know I'm skipping ahead, but I am a fabulous mother. I am a rockin' mother, and I show up at the football games and scream and yell and cuss. I, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, I do. And, and I remember one time they had, my son was out there, and he had a football game, and they were getting in a fist fight. And I said, that's my son out there. And I, you know, I'm running out there until somebody pulled me by the collar, and I get here, you know, I'm, and I said, you don't know who I am because I can throw a few good ones. And so anyway, they got me back in the stands, and, and they keep me way up on top now. And... um Surrounded by AA members. (laughs) My disease progressed, and I loved Christopher, and I hit the streets. And when I hit the streets this time, I was homeless. And that's when I started hooking up in gangs. So I went through a group of people. I uh, was in Hayward, California, at a big table where I cannot remember anybody's name, but they, uh, masses amount of... uh, marijuana was going on constantly and Peter Frampton and um, Gary Wright were playing I mean my gosh it's just embrained and um, we just sat there all day long and stared at each other because it was quite interesting you know (laughs) and um, from there I went to live in Vallejo and I lived on the streets and slept in a car and slept under any anywhere that I could find was safe 
And I lived with a Mexican family who spoke only Spanish, and we said salt and beer and tortilla. It worked out just fine. I was happy, especially when they said beer. And um, I lived with uh, a motor, two motorcycle affiliations, um, and one that I won't mention and, and one that, you know, I'll just say red and white, and I'll leave it at that, and out of respect. And then I moved into a crack house. I was the only woman out of seven men who lived in this crack house. And uh, I was the door runner. And what that means, and uh, Giuseppe said it perfectly, shh. And uh, I had proved myself on the street. My street name was Psychotic Sue. And I, I really earned that name. <laughs> uh, my co-partner was Boom Boom. And she earned that name. And there was about five of us. And and. She's still alive today, but still on the corner selling herself and doing what she needs to do. And I pray for her when we pray for the alcoholic who's still suffering. So to make a long story short, because it's been a journey, I ended up um, being the door runner, and I was really good at it. And the door runner stays up all night long. Well, that's quite easy when, you know, you're drinking whiskey and have, you know, four grams of methamphetamine in you, two grams of cocaine, and anything else that, you know, they knock on the door and want. And I'm running back and forth and back and forth. It was it was really a hard job, but I, I managed to pull it off. I didn't put it on my resume. <laughs> and um, I was good at it, and I would lock people in the house, and I would terrorize them, and I would make them, you know, do what they needed to do so that we got our money and, and, I mean, here I am a woman, and there's seven men, and I'm the door runner. So that tells you a little bit about how off the hook I was. The man that I had stayed with during this time, I moved out because the pressure on the streets was getting quite heavy on me, and I was owing money um, from some very serious affiliations. And packed up and called my grandma and said, can I come home? And she said, come home. And so I went back to her and my father, and I got an apartment, and Damien moved back in with me, and I got a knock on the door one day. I mean, just out of nowhere, this is how alcoholic life is. And I opened the door, and here's this man with long black hair, brown skin. And um, he says, I, I've never met him in my life, you know, and he says, would you like to do a line and drink some whiskey? And I'm like, well, for, God, for God's sakes, who sent you? Yes, come in. There is a God. Sit down and let's party. And he stayed for about three months. And three months later, <laughs> I'm locked up in an institution. I think I got in a fist fight with three men. Uh, for the record, I won. And, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, there has to be humor here. Um I remember being laid out on a table spread eagle, and I was um, in one of those white jackets. And I made no sense, and I was screaming and yelling and spitting and detoxing, and they gave me a shot in my hip, which brought me immediately back to sobriety. Well, that was no fun. And um, they locked me up, and I realized I was too sick to even move. I could not even make it down the stairs if I wanted to to get a drink to calm the voices in my mind. And I always say very gracefully, I don't know about you, but there's several of us that come in here. You know, they call it the committee. Oh, my gosh. Um, I had 13 on mine. Named them all, <laughs> just for the heck of it. And I'm down to two. And I think that that's a miracle, you know. <laughs> and the two that do bother me, I have a really good response for them today. I always say, you know, I know who you are, and I'm a child of God, and I belong here. When I walked in, I, I was home. So I tell these two voices today, I say, you know who I am, and I know who you are, and you know that someday I'm going to be where you're going to be, and I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> I'm going to kick it all over the place. And sometimes that will shut them up for a little while, and it kind of humors me. And, and we go through the day, but I think the most important thing is to not take yourself too seriously. So when you have the voice come, you know, threaten it. <laughs> and then call your sponsor, <laughs> who will tell you to immediately go to a meeting because you're talking to the voices, and that's not a good sign. So, oh, my goodness. The knock on the door came, and that was a three-month violent relationship 
of which I became pregnant again. And um, fertile myrtle. And so it, it worked out, you know, real well. I was six months pregnant and the voice started talking to me. But this was a voice so powerful that I want to remind all of us that when you have that still small voice, I don't care if you're 30 days new or you've been in this program for some time, crisis hits and life on life terms comes and people die and you get sick. And sometimes you have a void in your heart that's so huge that you don't know how you're going to fill it up. And that's all I wanted. I knew how to be a gangbanger. I knew how to shoot. I knew how to load a gun. You know how the shooter always sits on the right-hand side? I sat on the left. I knew all those things. I knew those traits. But there was some voice talking to me. And I was back with my dad and grandma, and he was talking. He was starting to talk medicine to me. And in our way, in our traditional Native American way, I waited four years before I went back to my people. And the voice was telling me that I was pregnant now with my third child. And I was alone and I had nothing and there was no money and there was no hope and there was no way out. And I was locked up again. And I prayed. I said, you know, Creator, I, I deserve nothing and I owe you everything. And I said, if this child could please be born healthy... I, I, you know, and I'm bartering at this time because I knew no better, but I said I promise to give anything that I have in my heart to anyone that I can at any time in prayer and faith and hope and love. And the greatest of these are love. And so my son, Elijah Blue, was born November 28th of 1989. And I had him all by myself in a little room. And he was born healthy. He's never seen me drunk. He knows I'll be home today. He knows I won't be drunk. He knows that uh, this fight may be around the corner at any time, but he has a really good a balance about keeping me calm. <laughs> and he's a wonderful child. And so after being let out of that rehabilitation center, I thought I was well. So I went to um, my meeting pregnant, and I sat in the back. And immediately upon walking in that room, I knew that I was at home. Um, there was no more bar, you know, bartering or... Um, compromising. There was no more great illusion that someday I would sit on that yacht. Oh, the margarita. And when we got off the yacht, you know, everything would be fine and the bills would be paid and everybody was happy. And I thought, of course you're happy. You're not pregnant. You're not homeless. You have money. You're laughing. And, um, but that didn't offend me. I, I felt like this is exactly where I was supposed to be. And I followed direction and I showed up and, um, my child was born healthy and my family became back together. And I waited four years. And in that four years, my father died. And I was actually on a medical crew. And um, they called me and they said, you know, you know, come up here. And I did CPR on my own father, who is my greatest teacher. And my grandmother, whose name is Katie Eve. And she, um, we're from the Kunyusu Club clan, which means we're spirit people. And it made sense to me. They named me Onawana Chokosa, which means morning star, the light of the morning. And now that's a hard word to say. And I thought, geez, I got to be sober to keep that one up. But, <laughs> but it managed out real well. And I stayed with the elders and I stayed with the winners in the program. And the first year I could not dress myself. I could not talk. I had no high school education. I could not subtract. <sighs> And I'm trying to take care of a new baby and my grandmother and father. And as life progressed and the people in the program surrounded me with their love, the light went on. And I can remember one day driving down the road and I, I managed to get some little car together. And, and I again heard the voice of God who we do not mistake. Don't question it when you hear him whispering in your ear because his voice is divine and loving. And he's not on the committee. 
And um, I said, if I could ask you one thing, I would ask you for this. I would ask you that I could be the greatest mother that you would have me be, that I would be a woman of respect, and that if it is possible that my brain would start working again and perhaps I could go back to school. And so I, I thought, well, I'll get my high school diploma first and um, go from there and dedicate my life to God, which I have ever since, which means we set the boundary and we're not willing to compromise. Now, if you want to move your boundary in this room, live with the consequences of moving your boundary. If you want to set your boundary and to thine own self be true, set it and go by the book. You know, the words of the big book. And so I set my boundary. And so that meant that no human being could relieve me from my alcoholism, my insanity, my poverty, my uneducation. I was so afraid. And I decided that I would be a nurse. Oh, boy. And what had happened is I went up to get my, I went up to sign up for all the classes. And they said, you know, we need, this information and that information, and they, we need your, if you've had any aliases. <laughs> and um, so when I went in, <clears throat> the list was about this long, <clears throat> and uh, I was a little humiliated, but I, I got a kick out of it, and I sat down in the nursing class next to uh, a lady, and we looked at each other, and um, I'm trying to be a little bit tough here and just kind of keep focused and thinking I finally made it for you. You know, two years of prerequisites, two years of studying, two years, well, two years of high school, you know, bringing Miwa and her little, her little, you know, they have those special schools for the mentally impaired and the bodily and mentally different from your others. <laughs> I took Miwa every day and we got through it, or Elijah, I'm sorry, and um I sat next to this lady and we looked at each other and I and I think I remember her saying, um, easy does it, because I was fidgeting. And I was nervous because I thought, what the heck am I doing here? You know, I can shoot a gun, but what the heck am I doing in nursing school? And um, and I looked at her and I said, live and let live. And, <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, keep coming back. And I was like, it's on, sister. And I said, I said, you know, are you a friend of Bill W.'s? And she said, yes, I am. And she had been for three years. And we had we sat in the front seat, and we had a meeting every single day of nursing school. Um, from being, coming from the streets and the divine intervention, um, I knew that God had placed me exactly where he wanted me to be, and I graduated seven in my class. And I thought seven was the lucky number. And um, I started going to business meetings and more meetings, and I had another baby. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean that I'm not being promiscu- promiscuous at this time in my sobriety. I didn't date until I was three years sober. But I did get married at that time. And um, and here comes Miwa. And she is my partner, and... Um, she is the granddaughter of the headsman of the Yosemite Valley Miwok Indians. And we dance together in our regalia, and we sing, and we talk in our language, and we go everywhere together. So for the mothers out there, and there's fathers that are mothers, and you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that disrespectfully. But um, there's one thing that I want to say to you, and that's thank you very much. Um, I haven't spoken quite a long time, so I'm a little bit scattered. I just want to thank everyone for restoring my soul, for putting hope in my heart that no matter what I go through, job or no job, car or no car, house or no house, husband or no husband, that... um one day at a time with your love that I'll stay sober and carry the message and that I can go to the women on the streets and when they start, you know, and, and I'm the Jetta's Jet and the Benz's Roll and the Caddy's Key Palm Bumpin' and they're like, oh, okay, I can talk to you. You know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you have to be there to know the story. But anyway, <laughs> it's kind of a street lingo. 
it's um, street bonics. And um, it's good. It's really good to go back and see them and love them for who they are. I graduated from nursing school. And, um, uh, you know, I heard one woman say, you know, you shouldn't talk about what you do or this or that. That's not humble. And I thought, bull crap. I said, you know, I worked really hard to be where I'm at and to share that with other women, women who are out there thinking, I've lost my children. I sold my children. I lived in a hotel. I worked in that hotel. I've been... I want to be everything that I wasn't, and I want to give back everything that I can be. And my past does not have to be my future as long as I don't take a drink. And I read the book, and I follow God's word. And an old-timer came up to me one time, and my first sponsor, she weighed 350 pounds, and she had tattoos all over her, and so do I. More than, And this is before tattooing was tattooing, you know. So that, you remember that country song? Uh, country before country was cool. And uh, mine's t- tattooing. Every other word was F this and F that, and I thought, God, I love this woman. And she could beat any man up in the fellowship. And there was there was kind of this pecking order. <coughs> and she was the head pecker. <coughs> and um, and I thought, this is good, you know. <laughs> She'll take care of me. And uh, I think one year into my sobriety, she came to my house and asked if I had a gun. <laughs> Like I'm gonna have a gun, and they still ask me those questions. And um, I decided that you know this was time to let go of this because God had instilled in me a new life and a new heart. Now, what He did, this is what I want to say to you that's most important: is He opened me up in a dream. He laid me down and He opened me up, and He took my heart out. And when He took it out, it was full of bitterness, resentment, hate, oh, fist fighting. I was afraid. I had no fear. Well, of course, I was full of a lot of Southern comfort, you know. But I had no fear because I had to fight my way to stay alive. He opened my heart up and he put his hand on it. And he said, behold, all things are new. Now go out and do what you're supposed to do. And talk to the people and let them talk to you. And you'll see the light in their eyes and the ones that are falling asleep because they were too late at the dance last night. (laughs) I get to see everything from up here. And, um, And look for the light and look for the person who is not only new, but the person who you think may suffer from a broken heart and embrace them and tell them that it's going to be okay, that I promise. The promise were given the promises were given to us. It's gonna be okay if we stay together in this fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm now a nurse and I, I manage five clinics and it's amazing because we have control issues, you know. And um my specialty is di- diabetes, which is I, I'm Massively in love with it, and um, because it involves every organ of the body, and we're bodily and mentally different. And I wanted to know how, how much different I was, and and then I went into psychiatry. <laughs> this is good. So I'm at the hospital, and I'm working with a 5150 patient who should have been me, but they say suit up and show up. And the sheriffs come in, and they you know walk in with their Glocks, and I'm like, ah, yes, sissies, you know, and. <laughs> And I'm behind the counter, and I'm triaging patients, and I'm, you know, doing the questions and the protocol, and they're behind the counter going, what are you doing back there? And I'm like, shut up. And and they said, what are you doing? And I said, I work here. I'm a nurse now. And they said, do you remember when we used to come to your house, and all you wanted to do was fist fight and this and that? And I said, shut up. Get out of here. I'm a nurse now. And we all laughed together, and it was quite funny. And... um. And I'll tell you that eight out of ten of my patients don't suffer from bipolarism or schizophrenia or so, you know, any of the diagnoses that we can give because there's, oh, the DSM-6, if you've ever ran into it, if you're in the medical profession, is about this big. And I'm on the first 346 pages, <laughs> so I could relate to anybody. And they locked me up with some pretty mean people. And... um 
Eight out of ten of them have lost the spirit of hope. So if you ever feel the feeling that the spirit of hope is leaving you, that's the crisis time. And so I couldn't believe it that I was in the hospital triaging and taking care of these people. Going to business meetings, I, I recognized, even though our traditions say politics, that politics are going on. And um, little did I know that I would be going into politics. The 23rd of this month, I go back to the state capitol to Sacramento to see my friend Arnie. And um, <laughs> do a fifth step on him. And um, <laughs> for, for the, right, the health care rights of the Native American people and our first indigenous nation people who I honor. And so I get to speak to all, all diverse groups of people and speak. And I'm in politics. I went into a meeting last week and people were fighting and they were screaming at me. And I'm thinking, where is my big book, cell phone, got your sponsor, don't die, don't kick, don't scream, don't bite their nose off. You know, and I, I made it through the meeting very gracefully and knowledgeably. I have a really good life today. I'm free. I am a free woman. I have my children back. I have a little 900, or we have a little 900, there goes the eyes, huh, me? I have a, we, <laughs> the damage is done. We have a little 900 square foot home that sits up on a hill that overlooks the town and the, and the pines because we're right out of Yosemite National Park. And we dance in our roundhouse and we're tribally affiliated again and politically affiliated again. And um, I'm a nurse. I'm the head nurse. I manage the clinic. I do the scheduling. Um, all the protocol, all the Title 22, all the Indian health laws. I go and speak on motivational uh, health care affairs for our First Nation people. And everything that I speak on and every word that comes into my mouth is from this program. I can remember my first pair of shoes because I came here without a pair, and now I own probably 27. It is so ridiculous. So we do go a little bit overboard on some, on some aspects. But I want to tell you thank you, and that's what I say every time. I have no idea how I sound this morning or what you need to hear or who needed to hear what I have to say. It's not about ego. It's about heart. Because you are me. And for that, I love you. If you're out there and you've lost hope, or if you're out there and you're in a crisis period, or you're in this deepest, darkest depression that does come to us, that even came to Bill, please extend your hand out. Please. Don't let that ego or that voice or that fear, because that's what Roger and Stevie did for me. This has been the hardest year of my sobriety, my 15th year. I'm now 16 years old. <laughs> I know I look good. No, <laughs> and <laughs> no, I joke. And um, but my 15th year was when the onion peeled. You know how they say the eagle has landed. <laughs> the onion has peeled, and. It has been um, painful, and we don't know what we're facing when we go home. But I know that I can show up at a meeting, and that I'll trudge this road, and that I'll see you again as we walk this walk together, because we never have to be alone again. Nor do we have to sleep in a box or carry a gun or give up our children or sell our soul to King Alcohol. We are free people because of what was written in this book. This is our tool. And I don't know about you, but I need something that I can have every single day. Thank you to my sponsor and her husband for coming. Thank you to all of you. In our native prayer, I say, Hayapo, 
Come and bless my brothers and sisters. Let them know that I love them. Let them know that I've done everything that I could do while out there on the streets. And that today my shoes match. I have teeth. I really have teeth. <laughs> I need nothing to see. And my socks match. My son actually packed for me to come to this trip. And I told my sponsor, oh, geez, you know, God bless him. Uh, two pair of pants, six shirts, and we'll just leave all, everything else out. <laughs> it's just that he's going to have a big talk when I get home. And, um, <laughs> and I get to go home to them. So thank you so much for listening to me. I wish you a safe journey when you go home. I wish you to carry the message because we are responsible. I want you to know that before I came here, I prayed for each and every one of you individually. It's, it's almost a fast in our way. We fast and we pray that the person sitting out there that thinks that no one understands or you're sitting there with a broken heart. I told my sister today, I said, how do I said, I'm going through a bad time. It's a bad time. It's going to be a hard year. And and we're not alone. I mean, I have a whole tribe that everyone wants to know what everyone's doing. Gosh, I hope they don't get this tape. And, uh, <laughs> and I know that by pouring myself into the meeting and using the tools and the steps of this program, and especially the traditions, that one day at a time I can stay sober and not ever have to go back to jail and the jail part may not scare me as much as that loneliness and that incomprehensible demoralization that I woke up to thousands of times, screaming for my children, fist fighting someone, terrorizing you. I send you with God's love. And if your heart's broken today, and there's something that's so heavy that you feel like you can't bear. There's someone sitting next to you. And if they're not big enough, I am. And with I am because he is. Thank you to my sponsor and her husband for coming here. And God bless you all on a safe trip back home one day at a time by the grace of God with the courage to change. And move forward. A hope and a blessing to you, my brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.